Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, running solo today. My dad's actually flying out to California at this very mo- moment with my mom, Phyllis. So he'll be broadcasting from the West Coast during these winter months. And of course, oh, just like you predicted, you got the dogs barking in the background. <laughs> yes, I did not time that on purpose. It that just- is perfect. I, <laughs> yeah. I think they're excited that they're being recorded. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, my dad will be broadcasting from the West Coast during the winter months. And of course, we are co-produced by my pal, Tristan, Tristan Drew, back in Ohio. And by the way, if you like the show, please leave us a review, hopefully five stars with some comments on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us in the rankings and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And please welcome... There, you have many titles. So the Reverend, the Doctor, Amy Laura Hall. Uh, Amy Laura is Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at Duke Divinity School and the author of several books. I, I apologize. I couldn't get through them all. Like I have been bathing in, in your works for since we started talking about this. And uh, I'm just going to keep on reading uh, whether I'm prepping for an interview or not. But let me just uh, tell you some of these books because they're a real treasure Kierkegaard. Do you say Kierkegaard? You you pronounce it a different way in another interview I heard. Oh, well, one of one of somebody, I can't remember who, suggested that the best way to pronounce Kierkegaard is to is to think of cookie guard. Cookie guard. <laughs> it's totally fine. Like I, I think of I think of Cookie Monster from Sesame Street. Okay some cookies so cookie guard it's just just call him cookie guard he would cookie be guard. Okay, i like that. it he would be very fine with yeah cookie guard cookie guard and the treasury of cookies no the treasury of love <laughs> uh conceiving parenthood american protestantism and the spirit of reproduction writing home with love which i love by the way politics for neighbors and naysayers and i also oh gosh i love them all uh laughing at the devil seeking the world with julian of norwich Nor- norwich Norwich. Yeah. yeah. Um, plus a forthcoming book that I'll be rooting on about muscular Christianity. Um, and since, since we're talking about it, Amy Laura's work will not only blow some of your paradigms in huge ways, you'll also pick up little treasures like how I think of words completely differently, like remembered <laughs> or at oneness, like these little treasures. They're, they're so wonderful, but also just, I mean, they really did give me so much to think about. Um, Plus, Amy Laura happens to be the most gracious, thoughtful, empathetic spitfire of an activist, minister, teacher, mother, good troublemaker Durham's ever seen. So, Amy Laura, how are you doing? Thank you, Corey. I'm doing, my goodness, I'm definitely doing better after that lovely introduction. Thank you so much. How's How's your family doing? 
Uh, we're doing okay. In the middle of your introduction, my heater came on, which is good because that way I'm not having to wear a toboggan while we're talking, but <laughs> the, the audio is still fine. Um, yeah, well, it's, uh, wow. The beginning of the pandemic, I was in Texas. I was in Cedar Park, Texas. I went to Texas during spring break, Duke spring break to help my parents, my mother was recovering from a heart attack and a stroke oh. that happened within about 10 days time in late January. So I was there trying to help as best I could with some of the basics. And then the pandemic hit. I flew to Austin in the, into the Austin airport the very day, I think it might've been the day that South by Southwest, they announced that South by Southwest festival was going to be canceled. Oh, man. And I, and I thought, ah, you know, overreaction. I teach in global health. I see how the politics of fear work. And I thought, no, there, this is, this is going to be an overreaction. Well, I, you know, quickly, pretty quickly figured out, no, that was not an overreaction uh, on the part of the planners of South by Southwest. And Three or four days into the pandemic, Duke moved all their classes online. And so I just stayed put in Texas for nine weeks. Oh, so man. I was there in Cedar Park, Texas, right outside of Austin, helping take care of my parents at the beginning of the pandemic, which was, yeah, it was very close quarters. And oh, wow. How was that? It was difficult. I wrote, actually, I wrote a, I wrote a piece about this. What did I call it? I think I called it the things we do for love. I can send you a link to it, but I wrote a piece for the Duke University Press blog. They have a blog. I wrote a, pre a, a piece for them about my experience of intruding on my parents. Mm. They've been married over 50 years and I was helping them, but I was also in some ways an intruder and what it, what it felt like to try to be attentive and loving and patient in the midst of all that and for them to have to do so with me. My older daughter is now working as a translator. She's fluent in Spanish and she's working as a translator at one of the community clinics here in Durham. And then my younger daughter has started her online classes. She's about to finish. In fact, wow. she was her Spanish final downstairs right before we started recording. So she's been taking all of her classes online for her first semester in, you know, in college. And that's been a challenge for her. So, you know, we're, we're all, we are all still standing at the end of the day. That's what some, one of my friends suggested that what we're doing right now is we're all standing on one leg. And so if at the end of the day, we are still standing at all that is a huge accomplishment um yeah so that's 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 my short version <laughs> getting through it as uh as difficult and challenging as it, as it may be but getting through it nonetheless is your dad still teaching and preaching so he was he taught some classes at austin presbyterian in Methodism, Methodist doctrine and polity, he hasn't taught in a while. He was a district superintendent for two terms, which was, I guess, eight years. 
in Austin, which means he was part of the bishop's cabinet in Austin, which Methodism in Austin is a whole thing. And, but no, he's finally, finally retired. He oh. served interim in a beautiful, beautiful church outside of Austin. It's about an hour outside of Austin, beautiful church. And he, you know, he loved it, but he's finally trying to live into being retired. Yeah. I was curious what it was like for you being, is this the right way to say it? Itinerant Methodist minister's daughter. Is that the right way to say it? Yes. Yes. We itinerated. Yeah. Word. It's a fancy word for having somebody, in, in this case, it was all men, deciding where we would be every year, um, where we would live. And so we moved, I think, I think it was like seven times before I was 12. Something That's like got, Wow. That's got to yeah. mess you up a little bit. Just, uh, you know, like in your formative years, it just it must uh, have a have an impact on on how you grow up. Oh, it definitely had an impact on how I grew up. So one one thing was we, we I was thinking about this not too long ago because I now have house plants. I have plants inside my house. And I was saying to a friend what a radical thing it is for me to have house plants because it, <laughs> it means having dirt inside the house. Because, because we lived in parsonages, we lived in, we lived in homes that belonged to the church. So no dirt was allowed in the house by oh. me. It was very clear. If you were going to have a house plant in the house, that would mean dirt. You're bringing dirt intentionally into the house. You can't bring dirt intentionally into the house. So we didn't have house plants. And yeah, so, so that's just one, one like very, very concrete logistical example. I also was, I was really small. I'm, I'm still only five foot two, but I was, I was small growing up and it meant that on every new playground I had to figure out what the rules were quickly so I do the the good part maybe the the trait that I learned from being in a new place every year or every other year was I learned to pay attention to power dynamics even Mm. children and to try to figure out how to be myself and survive. That sounds yeah. a little that sounds a little bit melodramatic, but I mean, some of the some of the towns we lived in were in West Texas were rough. They were it was it was not it was not easy going for a you know a girl and yeah, so I learned I learned to pay close attention to social cues okay. and to the dynamics of different families, who was related to whom, how how people might or might not respect. I mean, the racial tensions were always very significant to me. Um, in West Texas, it was primarily tensions between between Anglos and Mexican-Americans. So it's, yeah, so I heard things on the playground that I would take home and say, you know, what I, I obviously that, you know, I'd say something like this is wrong, but what do I do? And, you know, figuring out how to, yeah. It sounds like you started thinking about social political issues and even developing your sense of activism at a fairly early age. Yeah. 
Yeah, I did. I The only time I've ever hit another human being, the only time I've ever, you know, actually used my hand to hurt another human being, it was when I was in second grade and we were playing on the playground. We were playing the Wizard of Oz and I think her name was Susan Price. This was in Kyle, Texas. She told another little girl that she had to be Toto because Mexicans are dogs. And I was so mad that I hit her and ended up in the principal's office, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, you're not allowed to have fisticuffs. You're not allowed to have a, you know, girls are not supposed to fight. Even, you know, even West Texas girls are not really supposed to fight. So ended up in the principal's office. And it turns out that that, that family owned a lot of that town. And so wow. they had, it reverberated that, that little fight between two second grade girls um reverberated so throughout my 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 year in in Kyle in second grade I yeah my mom actually she she likes that story I think she's proud of me on some level she's yeah. four foot nine by the way my mom is four foot nine and broke up broke up fights on a regular basis between boys who were much bigger than her in junior high and senior high so oh that's yeah. right she was a she was a teacher as well Yes. Yes. She was, she's a retired public school teacher taught seventh grade through junior college taught, taught everything from American history to French as a language to theater studies. She's, she's a genius. My mom is a genius and she's pedagogically, she's just remarkable as a teacher and when I went back from my high school reunion, what most people wanted to know was how my mother was doing because they all loved her so much. I mean, she was scary, super scary. She, she's, she's really intense. And they all talked about how much they learned from her. So as an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church and a teacher, you got a little both of your parents in you. It's true. It's true. I, I yeah, it's, I think, I think I'm probably guilty if you charged me with trying to live out both of my parents dreams <laughs> I, th I think yeah it's the, the oldest the oldest child syndrome kind of thing where I wanted to please them I I didn't plan on going into what I went into I, I was very much planning on going into to law I was planning on going to law school and right. You, you went to Emory for poli sci, was it? Or Yes. Political science. Yeah. I loved political science. I still do. I still do. Yeah. Well, what ultimately led you to do the, you did an MDiv at Yale and then, and then your PhD there? Yes. What ultimately led you from poli sci to the, doing the MDiv? <laughs> so, oh gosh, this, the answer that I usually give that is this is true. It is true that I, so the man who I ended up being married to for 21 years, I'm no longer married to him, but I met him at a wedding when I was a sophomore in college. And I wanted to try to spend my summer in the Metroplex in Texas, the Dallas Fort Worth area. So I could get to know him better. And I needed a job. And 
the people I knew in that part of Texas were all church related. And I ended up with a, with a job at a church filling in for a Perkins intern, meaning Perkins. Perkins yeah. Oh. Perkins seminary. Yeah. Per Perkins okay. school. So not so, Perkins pancakes. Sorry. <laughs> no, I don't even know Perkins pancakes. Oh, that would have been, you know what? That that's an alternative reality where I where I worked at a pancake shop and then <laughs> ended up in a different. That I like I like imagining that actually, Corey. That's fun. <laughs> now that's a Jersey thing. Per Perkins must be a Jersey thing. It's like a chain diner kind of a deal. But uh, yeah, okay. great great pancakes there. <laughs> oh. Yeah, if if Amy Laura had gone to a diner instead of a church, <laughs> yeah, this story that's a, that's fun. I like that alternative. Um, no, I ended up working at a church, and I had to do everything that the senior minister didn't want to do because it oh. was a position. It was a position that usually a seminary student would be doing full time, and I was only, gosh, I wasn't even twenty yet. I was nineteen. And I remember saying to the minister, Bill Slack, I remember saying to him, I, I'm not qualified to visit people in the nursing home. I'm not qualified to teach adult Sunday school. Uh, maybe I can do vacation Bible school because I like kids. But um, and he said, are you baptized? And I said, well, yes, I am. Baptized. <laughs> he said, then you're qualified to do everything except you can't you can't you can't. He put it so bluntly, and now I can't remember his words. But basically, you can't you can't baptize babies, and you can't turn you can't turn the bread into the body. Um, okay. so, yeah, you can't. You, you, but you can do all the other things. And so, yeah, I ended up doing a lot of the other things, and I fell in love with church work. And it was really inconvenient. Mm. <laughs> I, yeah, kind yeah, of like an really inconvenient truth. Yes, yes, it was it was a true it was a tr it was a truth for me that that was unwelcome. I wanted to do something important. I wanted to do something that mattered and going to visit people who were shut in who could not leave their homes to come to church on some level felt like a waste of time. Mm except for the fact that I loved it. I loved hearing people's stories. I loved and treasured the, the gift of their trusting me with their prayers. It just, it, 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 that first summer really messed with my plans. And then I went back the second summer to the same church that's in Fort Worth. And I learned a lot. It was not a perfect church by any means. There is no such thing as a perfect church. I knew that going in because I'd grown up in churches, but I really fell in love with the ministry. And so somewhat to the chagrin of my, some of my mentors at Emory, I ended up going to divinity school instead of law school or a PhD in political science or sociology. So yeah, but I, I did, I, I fell in love with church work. Isn't that something oftentimes those things that we tend to do or have to do, we have to do, and it's not necessarily the convenient thing. There's one quick story. Um, I, I grew up around the New York theater scene and a buddy of mine was in a play. I forgot this actress's name, but George Zunza 
was in the play. And this, the lady who was the voice over the radio in Sleepless in Seattle, that was the actress. And it was a particularly rough rehearsal. We were having, uh, as New York actors tend to do, we, we were, I forget where we were, but we were just, it was one of the delis not too far from the rehearsal space. And uh, George just looks at her and he says, man, why do we do this thing? And she says in that inimitable voice, because we must. <laughs> and it's true, those things that we have to do, we just have to do it. And it's kind of like um, when I became a Christian, I grew up in, a, I wish my dad was here because he'd really get a kick out of you and you'd get a kick out of him. I grew up in a very observantly Jewish home. My dad is an Orthodox Jew. Um, and I became a born again, Bible thumping Christian about 20 years ago, uh, which is which in some ways is sort of the birth of this, this project that we're doing. And uh, looking back on that, when I was really almost obsessively investigating these basic questions of what ultimately led to me becoming a Christian, I realized that there's any number of other directions I could have gone um, or choices I could have made or answers I could have arrived at that were a lot more convenient than becoming a Christian uh, growing up in the family that I did. But the answers were too coherent and too cohesive to those basic questions that I simply, I couldn't do I couldn't, I couldn't arrive at conclusions simply for convenience sake. So anyway, what, what you say makes, uh, it, it resonates on a lot of different levels. What was the focus of your PhD at Yale? So I went, when I started doctoral work, I actually spent a year at Boston College first. I was hoping to write on Thomas Aquinas and specifically I was interested in Roman Catholic Protestant dialogue around the relationship between the relationship between virtues and salvation. So the technical words would be soteriology oh. and and holiness. I, I don't know how to put it exactly, but I was I was very interested in the conversations that had gone on before I started divinity school. I'm trying I'd have to look up the dates for this, but I was interested in questions around how to interpret justification by faith. And there were there were Catholic Protestant, specifically, I believe it was specifically Catholic. Lutheran dialogues that I started reading the proceedings about, reading reading articles, reading essays written by scholars who were trying to think through justification as Protestants and as Roman Catholics post-Vatican II. My advisor, my main advisor, two my two main advisors at Yale for my MDiv program were a woman who's a Sisters of Mercy. She's in the Sisters of Mercy. She's a, she was one of the first women tenured at Yale named Margaret Farley and George Lindbeck, who grew up in a Lutheran missionary household, I believe in China. I think I've got that right. So, so George, I don't know if George Lindbeck and Margaret Farley actually liked one another, but they, I <laughs> I definitely was learning from the two of them. And so I spent a year at Boston College 
studying Roman Catholic theology, there are lots of different reasons why I ended up leaving that program after my MDiv program. So I spent a year there. There are lots of different reasons why I ended up just deciding that wasn't the right the right program for me. And it had to do in part with the fact that Veritatis Splendor came out that year. And so the politics around teaching Catholic Christian ethics were, it was, it was a very intense year as a Protestant and as a woman to be there. But I took a class on Kierkegaard in the philosophy department at Boston College with a woman named Vanessa Rumble. And I loved Kierkegaard. I loved reading Kierkegaard as much as I loved reading Thomas Aquinas. And I thought when I started my PhD at Yale, I was going to try to do both. And at a certain point, I realized that's crazy. I'm not going to write a dissertation on both Thomas Aquinas and Soren Kierkegaard. I'm going to have to choose one. And so I ended up focusing on Kierkegaard for my, for my PhD. And then my secondary, my applied ethics intensive was in medical ethics, um, specifically related to medical ethics and reproduction. So that, hence the second book. So that's, that's, I'd already started my second book in note form as I was finishing my PhD at Yale. Okay. And then, um, <laughs> so you, you were working on some, some cool stuff. Uh, I'm curious, now I'm making the connection from Yale to Duke, and I'm just imagining what your first conversation with Stanley Harawas, how, how that went. <laughs> huh. Okay. So I should preface this by saying that Stanley has taught me so much. I read an essay of his, the very first thing I read of his was about marriage and not everything in that essay ultimately was helpful to me in retrospect, but I remember thinking, I want to write like this. Mm. Writing seemed to be, he was writing for real people. He, he definitely has written many things that are for friends who are specifically scholars and he also, in his, in his writership, in his authorship, consistently wrote essays that he hoped people would be able to suggest to their, to their parents who weren't academic. So, you know, he, he wanted people to be like, oh, I, this is a helpful essay. I'm going to send this to my aunt, or I'm going to send this to my grandchild, or I'm going to send this. Like, he, he, want, he, he wrote in such a way that he he hoped scholars would, would find the words helpful enough that they would offer them to somebody else. So having said all that, I had many different friends who begged me not to take a job at Duke, specifically <laughs> because of him. I, I have to say, by the way, that, that you, you've achieved, uh, if that was one of your goals in, in being a colleague of Stanley's, if you read any of your essays, you might, you might use, whether it's, um, giving a sermon at a church or a column for a local newspaper or one of your classes or one of your books, you might come across a story about an inter interaction you had at a Cracker Barrel, or you might use an Ozzy Osbourne song to make your point. Like you really not just contemporize things, but make it, make it relevant to our daily lives, you know, not, not this highfalutin 
you know, theology above the clouds kind of a thing, but like in our, in our lives, you know, so you've, you've definitely done that. Oh, Corey, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you, but I, I had to just, for our listeners, it's a real, it's a real treat. If, if you just, uh, well, I, I've, I've, I've sold, uh, I've sold your stuff, but um, I, I did want to make that point. So I'm sorry, I, I interrupted your point. No, no, th- thank you. Thank you for saying that. I, I try, I try to, <laughs> I try to write that way. Um, so, so quite a few people in the Academy dissuaded me, tried to, tried to dissuade me from coming to Duke on faculty in 1999. I've, so I've been at Duke since 1999. And the, my first conversation with Stanley after I, was it after I received the request to come on campus for an interview? I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was, it was as Stanley I had met him before when I was thinking about different doctoral programs, but it was my first time to have a conversation with Stanley as a potential colleague. He called me on my phone at about, it was about 6.30 in the morning. I had at that time a two and a half year old and we were in a small apartment. He woke her up. He, I was already awake, but um, the phone rang at 6.30. I picked up the phone He said, this is Stanley Hauerwas. And I said, oh, good morning. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the very first things he said to me was, you need to understand I'm a ball scratcher. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I was like, when I I think about it in, you know, it was only 630 in the morning and I was trying to hopefully have my daughter go back to sleep so I could get a little work done later that morning. I, what I wish I would have said was, you think I don't already know that about you? Like, <laughs> you think you're incognito as a ball scratcher? You think I, you know, like, I know that about you. But what I said instead was, well, if I had them, I think I'd probably scratch them too. <laughs> That's that was my response. Um, yeah. Well- I just out of curiosity, why were some of your friends and colleagues concerned about the possibility of you going to Duke? Well, Stanley's assistant said to me after I took the job and I came on campus, Sarah Friedman, that's her name. I believe that's right. Um, she said to me something like, you're either really naive or foolhardy. <laughs> you're either really naive or foolhardy. And something like that. She said that to me in the hallway. I think part of it is Stanley hadn't had very many women work with him for their doctorates at that point. He had worked with Kelly Johnson, who wrote a brilliant, helpful book. I mean, it's just such a such a good book. I've taught it several times um, called Fear of Beggars. He, let's see, there were, he'd only had a few, oh, Tracy Lysot, who's a, just an amazing bioethics scholar in bioethics. Both Kelly and Tracy are amazing, amazing scholars and colleagues. I love them both. So those are two women who'd worked with him, but he hadn't worked with that many women. And I think part of it was the Duke had a, had a reputation. I'm not sure we've changed this reputation that much. If you look at 
our list of full professors at Duke in my field of theology and ethics. I'm not sure we've changed our reputation that much, but Duke had a reputation at the time of being very testosterone-y. And so friends were concerned about whether or not I would, I would receive the respect I deserved as a scholar and had to earn, I had to earn every, every pair of eyeballs on a text. I had, you know, when I, when I would teach classes, I knew that I could not assume that I was coming into the room with authority. I had to figure out how to teach two things. First, that I was worth listening to and that, you know, whatever material I was trying to convey. And it it meant that I never took my students for granted. That's for sure. I learned a lot and, and they would share with me what they thought about my classes. If I wasn't making sense, I would know even sometimes during the lecture. Yeah. But he would interrupt me and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And that's that's a kind of gift. I, I So, yeah. So I, I don't regret it at all. I don't regret it. Good. One pretty simple question. Since you've been in uh, at Duke now for 20 years, um, this is a really important question. You just need to settle an age old debate. Durham, one syllable or two. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. And you know, Durham is the kind of is the kind of city where they oh my gosh, the people in my church, I've been a member or I've been an associate member. Is that the term? Because I'm ordained, unless yeah. I do conferences, I'm not I anyway, but the church I have been attending since 1999, it it took them 15 years to trust that I was genuinely here to stay because they've had so many people come and go. So because of the town gown dynamics in Durham, I'm just now considered by (laughs) I love in Durham to be an honorary Durhamite, an honorary. Okay. All right. All right. I don't know. I, you would have to, you'd have to ask, You'd have to ask somebody who has lived here their whole life because <laughs> I, I I probably have been mis mis you know mispronouncing it. And no one has corrected me because they're gracious. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> um, well, on a more serious note, you have had a way of making sure that your voice has been heard not in not just on an individual basis, but as a part of community or communities. Um, who've had a hard time hearing their voices heard. So on that note, I want to start getting into some specific issues. Um, In an interview you did within the last year or so, I think, with Crackers and Grape Grape Juice, which, by the way, is a great podcast, Crackers and Grape Juice, you said you tried to see the dignity of each and every human being. And I can attest to that. I see that in so much of your writing, so much of your work. Do you... (laughs) Do you find it difficult to maintain that ethic with individuals who exhibit a lack of humanity or humaneness? You mean the Dick Cheney problem? Dick Cheney problem. Well, you know. I mean. I, so, yeah, so, um, yeah, I I call it the Dick Cheney problem because the question I get when people 
for people who've read Laughing at the Devil, Julian of Norwich can be charged effectively with universalism. And so I've had people, they usually ask me about Hitler and, and I try to bring it into the present and say, okay, we have somebody walking around still alive who we could, we could ask this about and that would be Dick Cheney. And just to pull one person, you know, one, one living person into the conversation. And I, do I have trouble seeing the dignity, not, not, I don't have trouble seeing the dignity because I don't know why, Corey. I, I don't know that it's a virtue on my part. I think it might just be, I think it might just be a personality quirk. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I don't know that I can tell you that it's a virtue because I, let me try to think of, so I did have somebody ask me once in class, a student asked me, what would you do if you were sitting next to, I don't know, Donald Rumsfeld? This was in a class on war. What would you do if you were sitting next to Donald Rumsfeld and on an airplane? And, and I, I said, you know, well, I would love to sit next to Donald Rumsfeld on an airplane. I'd like to hear I'd like to hear his perspective on why he was doing what he did, why he does what he does. I, I have heard, I've got to be careful on this one, but I've heard confessions as a minister. I've heard confessions from people who made decisions that are horrible and that affected many people. And I've, found in my experience that that many of them want to hear that there is nothing ultimately that separates them from the love of God that there that every single human being is redeemable I, it, it's it's something have you heard me tell the C.S. Lewis story Corey I don't, I don't want think to so Corey twice um when my older daughter was young, my ex-husband, who was her, you know, my husband at the time, who is her father, was reading to her one of the Narnia books. I was cooking and I overheard this conversation. It was when it's when the witch in one of the books, the witch is killed. I don't know if Aslan kills. I don't remember how the witch dies, but the witch is killed. Um, somebody kills the witch. It might've been Aslan. I can't remember. So your, your, your listeners are going to be like, she doesn't even know who killed the witch. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that. I don't know the Narnia, the Narnia. I didn't grow up reading the Narnia series. Um, but, but Rachel, Rachel said, I, I overheard, she was like, but that's sad. The witch, the witch died, you know, or maybe she said the, the witch's name. I don't remember, but she's, you know, she was sad that the witch had been killed. And she said, she said to her dad, but she's a child of God. Mm. And her dad said, well, it's kind of tricky because in this story, she's not really a child of God. She's kind of something else. And Rachel said, I remember this so clearly, she said, then C.S. Lewis was not a Christian and I'm not reading him anymore. Oh, wow. Is this the... It was, it was just like, I remember just being like, oh, I am so going to quote this child for the rest 
she seems to be a highly quotable child. She also, is this the same one that came to the conclusion that there's poop in heaven? Oh, that was, that was Emily. That was okay. my younger daughter. Yes. And they're yes, both they're quotable really children. Young. Yes. They just, they, they just amazing, amazing questions, amazing theological um, assertions. Yeah. Just assertions. So it's one of the things that I do so appreciate about the created world, the world creating world building. Do you call mm. it world? The built world that um, that that J.K. Rowling built, the the world that J.K. Rowling built in the Harry Potter series has as an essential part of it that Draco Malfoy is not beyond redemption. So much so that if you all, if y'all haven't read the books, please stop listening. <laughs> but so much so that that one of our most beloved characters. Dies safe, trying to save him. Right? I mean, it's Draco Malfoy is not beyond redemption. Even, I mean, even Voldemort. Right? Like where it's it's Voldemort who is the name that shall not be named. So, yeah, I appreciate stories about God's grace and about possibilities that are aptly complicated. Because life is very complicated, and I, I don't know if I'm now rambling, Corey. Am I? Am I sort of answering your question? You are. You are. What comes to mind is that one of our corporate proclivities nowadays seems to be uh, dehumanizing entire groups of individuals. Uh, whether it's friends of mine who are not fans of Donald Trump that see those who do support him um, as irredeemable um, or, or vice versa, friends of mine who do support Trump that just can't, cannot fathom folks who do, who, who, who don't support him. Um, and I, I think- That's CNN. That's CNN is selling people stuff. That's, that's the thing. It's, it's it, divide and conquer is a brilliant way to control people. And demonization is a brilliant way to get eyeballs on a screen, right? Yeah. So I well, interrupted you, but it, this makes me mad. I will tell you, if I were going to be really angry at somebody, it would be Ted Turner. Is he still alive? He is. The, the way, so the ways, the day, the morning, the morning after the election, four years, well, not quite four years ago, anyway, yeah, four years ago. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> COVID has made my, my sense of time all wackadoo. But that morning, I woke up at like 4.30 because I'd gone to bed early. I was exhausted. And I woke up at like 4.30. And I don't even have a CNN app on my phone. And I went to look at how much Hillary Clinton had won by. Um, and there, but the first thing that popped up was an image of Donald Trump with red behind him, he looked like he had horns, and the in in red was the percentage uh, electoral votes or whatever. It, it but I was like, wait, I don't why why I'm all of a sudden is that what I'm seeing when I didn't even look up CNN? Right, it came up on my phone. I don't have I didn't have Apple whatever on my phone. But I thought this is going to be a really long four years, no matter what. Mm. If this is what we're doing is 
the devil, the devil is now our president. And that's, that's what CNN without my even having CNN on my phone was able to put in front of my eyeballs. I just thought this is, it's, it's going to, this is going to be a very long and divisive four years. And I, I just, I, I've seen it. I've seen it in so many different ways um, with family members, with students in my classroom. And it's, it served, it served no one well, except for the oligarchs whose names we don't even know. Yeah. I've noticed a lack of focus on Trump, even going back to your columns from the Durham Herald Sun in 2015, 2016, 2017. And as someone who teaches on Christian ethics, I would think you'd have a lot to say on this particular specimen. (laughs) Um, So is that a conscious choice not to allow that individual to become a focus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 whether, so on one side, MSNBC was covering nothing but how horrible he is. And on the other side, Fox News was covering all the ways that he's wonderful. And there were many, many different it, crucial stories that we we just weren't, the, the mainstream media. And I, I, I eventually it became, I wasn't supposed to say the words mainstream media because that made me sound like I was, I was on one side and not the other side, but mainstream media did not give us all sorts of different stories that we needed to be talking about. It was, I'd have to look back at when this author was all over the talk show circuit, but it was before the primaries, before the last, before the last primaries, before 2016, I'd have to look at the dates, but a man who wrote a book called Becoming China's Bitch, so there was a <laughs> coming China's bitch, and he was on Stephen Colbert. He was on a whole bunch of different, different main, you know, like NPR kind of uh, outlets talking about his book. And you know, for four years, we were supposed to not talk about the geopolitics related to related to to China, we were only supposed to focus on Russia and only in certain ways. I mean, it's just, it's been a cluster muck in terms of actual journalistic, real journalism about things that do affect the daily lives of people in the United States who work for a living, which is most of us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see, I see what you're saying. Um, hmm. it, I, I guess I'm guilty of it too. Uh, because he's an easy symbol for for just so much other conversation, um, but he's a common reference point um, that we can discuss all these other things. Uh, but you're right; there's so much else going on in the world um, that that he's taken all the oxygen out of the room for us to be able to talk about other things that affect our day to day lives. Well, and he and he and he would. I mean, if if these major media outlets hadn't been covering him, he wouldn't have had all the oxygen. Yeah. The, the stupid from the, from descending the damn escalator to even before that to anyway, I, I don't want to give oh, it descending m- the damn escalator. That's, that is actually Corey. We could talk about that for a long time because I remember when I saw that I, I saw it on a screen at a place 
where I was, I was sitting and looked up and I was like, oh my gosh, wow. And the word that immediately came to mind was gauche, which isn't a word I hear very often, yeah. but I'm like, that's so gauche. Yeah. And I, I thought, who is he trying to appeal to? But that was stupid on my part. I'm a political science person. Like I should, I should have thought aspirational politics. I mean, it's, the aspiration to be able to flip off your boss and say, mm-hmm. de- you're dehumanizing me. That I have to say, I have to give a student credit for that. We were in a class and, and people were talking about why is he appealing? This was during the primary 2015 or so. And one young man risked saying, my dad likes him because my dad really wants to tell his boss to go F himself. You can say it. <laughs> okay. We got go the explicit rating. Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah, my dad wants to be able to tell his boss to go fuck himself and he can't. And this man looks as if he's saying, go fuck yourselves to all of the people who my dad thinks are looking down on him. And I, I, I remember thinking that's it. That's so helpful to name. And so Telling such people, you know, you are, you are despicable. Like, yeah. well, that's going to get us a long way in terms of figuring out how to talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. That, that makes sense because a lot of the folks uh, that I've talked to about what are some of the main reasons that you support Trump? And these are friends of mine. Um, a, a, the common, one of the common themes is his messaging that, that seems to have worked is he'll fight for us. Uh-huh. Um, but I have I have other questions like fight for what against whom and and for uh, like who's us? Y- yeah. You know, no, that, it's, it, yeah. Digging digging just beyond the surface of that is what doesn't is where I'm not connecting. But there is this perception that the we like that lady that you came across in the Cracker Barrel that I, I, I mentioned uh-huh. right, yeah. who, who said, well, they, they want to take Jesus. Christ at a Christmas or something. I forgot the story. Oh, exactly. they, they don't want us to say the word. Yeah. And we were <laughs> yeah. And like, who's they, who's they. Yeah. Who's they. Well, that, and that's where, that's where I think other people you talk to will be able to talk more about the way that the, the, the they functions in, outlets like Fox News, but also, you know, I mean, I have friends who at at least used to like Alex Jones. I have lots of people in my life who love, um, dang it, I'm going to forget his name, used to be a caller for world Dana White's thing. Uh, Oh, oh, uh, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> My brain's trying to connect with us. Um, yeah. So I think, I mean, I'm gonna risk, I'm gonna risk making some overgeneralizations here, but I think the they is people, well, they've been told, people have been told that the they are people who want to take their jobs. Mm. The they are people who want no longer to have people be allowed to have heterosexual marriage. I mean, I, I've had conversations with people where I'm like, wait, you do understand that that I most most people I know who want for gay and lesbian people to 
have, you know, to be, to be affirmed with dignity, don't want you to have to get a divorce. That's not, right. that's not um, but the they language has been, it, it gets eyeballs on a screen. It gets listeners on a radio show. Divisive politics is as exciting for some people, especially, well, as exciting for some people as a circus, especially during are incredibly precarious economic times. So tapping into people's fears is a brilliant way to control them and to keep them divided. And the text that I recommend on this that you can look up quickly is by Lillian Smith. She wrote a book called Killers of the Dream and she has a chapter, it's 1946. This is 1946 that she's writing it. She's got a chapter called Two Men in a Bargain about how mill owners convinced white mill workers to see themselves as in control of their situation by telling them that they are better than black people. And it was the mill owners trying to make sure that the black and white workers did not unionize and stand up together against the mill owners. And it's a brilliant piece of of southern politics diagnosing how divide and conquer works and it it works in lots of different ways in different regions and that's lillian smith what's the name of the the book killers of the dream killers of the dream well you you, there's a lot there that i want to dig into a little bit um more broadly speaking i'm curious how you see politics as a matter of ethics and and let me tease this out a bit um I've thought deeply about ethics, priorities, what what I and my family value. Even more particularly, I see morals and ethics through the lens of scripture. When I became a Christian, that was one of the conclusions that I made that, that I said, this thing is authoritative. Um, and any political positions I have or, or, or politicians I prefer, at least to the best of my judgment, are based on those ethics. Now, a lot of other friends I have, even, even in the church, most strikingly in the church actually seem to start with a political preference and then back their ethics into those preferences. Or, I mean, if I wasn't being so diplomatic, I'd say prejudices. Um, Many others might say, keep your ethics out of my politics. So my question is, what observations have you made about the interplay between morality and politics? And how does your own set of values inform your politics? Oh, oh, that was a whole, that was a whole bunch of questions, Corey. <laughs> I guess so. I'm sorry. I tend to, you know, you know, you know what it is. I'm still Jewish okay. in that regard when there's, you know, yeah. you get two Jews and five opinions. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which is actually, I, I was, I, I was, I, thank you for that because I was, I was thinking, is it okay for me to say this or is it going to come across as a, a, a weird sort of comment? But <laughs> part of, part of what I was thinking was I, I was going to risk asking if you grew up arguing about scripture, because it's one of the things I, I, I have to try to unlearn. I mean, I not unlearn. I have to try to reteach. I have to go backwards with many, many of my students who think that scriptural study is going to lead them to one answer. And one of the ways I eventually learned to, to talk to them about it is to say, think about a woman in your congregation 
who has a King James version of her Bible, who is in her 70s or 80s and has notes in her Bible and little you know, pieces of paper where she's marked things. Do you think that she thinks she has at this point come up with the one meaning of any particular section that she has marked? Mm. Probably not. She's having an ongoing conversation with this text. And so most, most people in my life who take scripture really seriously are in an ongoing struggle and conversation with the text. And they consider it holy enough to struggle with. And there I'm drawing on another former student named Sarah Job, who, who I heard her say this years and years ago. She's, her last name is J-O-B-E. And she's, a, she's an ordained Southern Baptist woman. Um, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, from Tennessee, she she said that that she considers scripture to be such that she's she's going to wrestle she's going to wrestle with scripture until it blesses her, and I think and I think that's that that more rabbinic way of struggling and thinking and arguing with the text that's 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 how I try to teach scripture in my ethics classes is you know, get them to think about which passages most are about love for them. And then, and then ask them why, why that particular passage is about love and what other passages are also potentially about love. And that was just in a class I'm finishing teaching this week. So. Yeah. It's a good observation because, you know, going back at least 22 or 2300 years, we have documentation of, well, this rabbi said this, and this rabbi said that. And on the other hand, the other rabbi said that, you know, so, and we still talk that way very, very much so. And that's why, I, gosh, I wish my dad would so enjoy this conversation, um, but he'll, he'll hear it and he'll have a lot to say about it. So. And we can have, we can, we can have a, we can have a part two, you know, in a year. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, okay. So, and you're right about my own evolution personally there were gosh I, I wonder when this was about 2003 2004 i had i was still kind of a new christian but i had read through hebrew bible and new testament several times at that point and i started to realize that the default position of a lot of folks in my church was very different than what i was reading in in scripture one of the early ones that i came across um, I, I had been reading Torah my whole life, but I read, uh, I think it was Leviticus 19 and it just, it struck me at the end of Leviticus 19, it speak, it's like screaming from the hilltops about how we, as the people of God, as the, you know, the, the people of Israel should view an issue, a political issue like immigration. And it was very different than the position, the political position, the social position that a lot of folks that I, I was going to church had on immigration. So that was one of the early issues that kind of raised my, my eyebrow about, wait, we might not be corporately right about this thing. Another one that I want to ask you about, it, um, you wrote an essay called Why I Am Christian and Pro-Gay. Uh, and sorry, I'm, I'm kind of going, this is a long way around the barn, but I just want to give you some background. So I, as I said, I, I believe in the authority of scripture, and it's hard to it's hard to avoid some of the references um, that you come across, especially in like a couple of Paul's letters. And um, 
I'll tell you a quick story. So uh, a, a good friend of mine, um, he, he's a gay fella. And this was probably, when was, when was Prop 8 on the ballot in California for gay marriage? We were having a conversation about, I think it was 2008 or so. Yeah, I, I remember being really upset about it. But yeah, keep going. Yeah. yeah, so he and I were having a conversation about it. And he's gracious enough to allow me to be me and not have to apologize for what I believe in. And I was coming to, I thought I was arriving at a certain conclusion about how I'd vote on that prop. Um, and we even in our conversation, we even opened up the Bible. And I said, hey, look, yeah, so here's references to homosexuality. And, you know, I, I didn't want to apologize for it, but I, I just wanted to be transparent with with my friend. And mm -hmm. as I'm reading, I think it was the one in First Timothy, was it? That I was reading this list of like, you know, uh, I'll just say sinful behavior. And what occurred to me as I'm sitting with with my buddy was, hey, man, you know, I know it says this about homosexuality or homosexual acts or whatever, but I'll tell you what, I I probably check a lot more of these boxes than you do. So it was um, it it was an eye opener for me. But um, oh, sorry, I'm I'm kind of I'm going off about this, but I ultimately came to a libertarian position on that issue at that time, and I'm still, uh, as Obama said, evolving on the issue. Um, and the, the, the epiphany I had on that one was, well, listen, let's say we make gay marriage illegal. Um, I, I have friends that are gay. I have friends that are bi. I have friends that are queer. You know, um, I guarantee you not a single one of my friends is going to wake up the next day and say, gay marriage is illegal. Being gay must be a sin. I better become a Christian now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not mm -hmm. going to do anything to advance the gospel. It's not going to do anything to, to, to build the kingdom if we get this, this law passed. So that's where, what I arrived at, at that point, I wanted to ask you though, sorry, I told you this is going to be a long way around the barn. Okay. How do you reckon with passages like that one in first Timothy or um, in the Corinthians um, or Romans one, how do you reckon with that? Well, if I mean, for, just start with First Timothy. I shouldn't be teaching. I shouldn't be teaching. Right, right. I mean, because I, of the the, I, the women male deceive thing. men. Yeah. Women deceive men, and um, we we're born. You know, we're born deceptors, deceivers, and uh, yeah. And I'll be saved through childbearing, not through the birth of Jesus Christ. I mean, I I think First Timothy is one of those books that. I'm like, how did this make its way in? I've, <laughs> I've actually preached on that on that text because I there are all sorts of reasons why I think it's it is important that it's there because it records a struggle that the early church, early Christians, not to be anachronistic, but early people, early followers of Jesus were were dealing with in terms of Roman law. You were not supposed to. Well, that would take me into a whole other conversation. But I've written about this. <laughs> yeah. I've written First Timothy. I'm trying to remember where that is, but um, I, gosh, okay. In my experience, if people are talking about homosexuality as an issue, I can't, I can't predict how that's going to happen. I don't even know that I can facilitate that conversa conversation well, or as a scriptural matter, what I guess I would, I would probably do is have us read slowly through passages and think about that section in its 
literary context. I do have us do close word study about the Greek. If we were looking at like First Timothy, which which is one of the things I, I did a long time ago as I was thinking through passages in scripture that prohibit women teaching women teaching men, women teaching anybody in First Timothy's case. <laughs> in churches, when I when I've had conversations with people in churches about homosexuality, and I actually ask, do you know anybody who is gay? And I know that that title that you read of that essay, that was you know, for the Durham Herald Sun. Yeah. I knew that if I wrote the title, why I am Christian and pro LGBTQIA+, I was, there were a whole bunch of people who read the Durham Herald Sun who were not going to read anything after that. So I made a decision. I made a rhetorical decision, um, conscious decision about rhetoric to call myself Christian and pro-gay, knowing that I would offend some people for not ever yeah. using the term pro-gay. Um, but in, in my experience, if you ask Christians, do you know anybody who's gay? They do. And, and I, I, I can I tell a story on this? Cause this is a little bit roundabout, but I, Please, I was yeah. teaching my Sunday school class at Trinity United Methodist church. And they gave me permission to tell this story. So I was teaching a, a, a Sunday school class of people in their seventies, eighties, and nineties. Um, almost all of them have either gone to God or gone to Crowsdale, which is the, one of the, one of the, um, the assisted living facilities here in Toronto. So I'm not teaching that class anymore because we, we, we don't have, yeah, we're not, we're, there aren't enough of us to be together, but, um, I was going to focus on the family to give a talk. And I told them, I'm not going to be here in a couple of weeks because I've been invited to speak at Focus on the Family in Colorado Springs. And they were like, well, that'll be interesting. Yeah, a few people in the class were like, where, where is she going? Like, what is she doing? And so I, I tried to explain a little bit. And and I said, you know, wish me luck. It's, I, there, it was, I think it was after Conceiving Parenthood came out. And one of the women in the class said, you have to talk to them about homosexuality. And I was like, Marty, that's like one of the things I was kind of thinking, maybe I wouldn't talk to them. Like <laughs> <laughs> I, I often will go in and try to tell people like give, you know, give a lesson that I think they most need to hear. But I was thinking this is going to be, I'm going And she said, you absolutely have to talk to them. And she started turning to other people in the room. And these are, you know, these are the senior citizens of my congregation that I'm a part of. And and they were, they were all like, oh yeah, you, you need to talk about that. And we in that class had never talked about mm. related to homosexuality. And one of the men in the class said something like, well, I just don't know because I, he quoted a scripture. He said something, I don't know, that God created, he may have actually said something like God created Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. Adam and Steve, yeah. <laughs> You know, I God, for I like your your phrase better. You used it a couple times in a couple different ways. Beautifully and wonderfully made gay by God. Yes, beautifully and wonderfully made gay by God. So his wife turned to him and said, "Oh, come on. Yeah. Now you know that that nice man, and she said his name, who lives right next door to us. You know they're a couple, and you love them." And he was like, "Well, that's true." Yeah. And that 
was it. That's that's the thing is that if if you if you're if you're visiting with somebody about a podcast that somebody just came out with, if you're visiting with somebody about it about it as an issue, it's a totally different conversation than. That's a really really good point. Is again going back to taking the humanity or the like the human quality out of it, you make it an issue and not about people, right? Uh, speaking of which, uh, since you mentioned focus on the family, I don't know if this is public information, but I had friends there throughout the organization uh, that really, they, they needed some sort of permission structure. They felt very differently about it, a lot closer to, to your position than uh, James Dobson felt about it. They almost needed a permission structure internally at the organization to start talking differently uh, because they have friends. It's Uh not, it's not an issue. It's a person. They're, they're people, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So bringing Mm -hmm. the humanity back, uh, taking it away from an issue and making it about people. It's interesting. And no, and and I, I will tell you for myself, the, the, when I was about eight years old, a friend of the family um, who my mom had grown up with committed suicide. And I overheard those conversations and figured out in part with my cousins, the grown-ups best guess as to why he had committed suicide. I mean, this is West Texas. Um, My mom grew up in West Texas and masculinity there, my gosh, it's still, I mean, it's still incredibly dangerous to be out as a gay man there. And growing up, I went to high school at the same high school my mom went to. There's a long story as to why. I mean, basically the bishop sent us to San Angelo and I went to high school at the same high school my mom went to. And the only suicides I knew as a teenager were gay and lesbian young people who killed themselves. And so, and there was one of the, yeah, I, I, I also knew, I also knew some gay and lesbian teens who survived and got out and, and, you know, came out and got out. Mm. But I didn't, it's for me, it's backwards in that backwards, meaning the order. I, I knew people who had, who had suffered horribly because they were deemed to be freaks, aberrant uh, mistakes, God's, you know, mistakes, you know, mistakes in creation. I knew people. And so thinking about scripture and going back into a question of homosexuality, I just, that's not the order in which, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to do it the other direction on, I'm just being really honest. And I know some people will judge me as being lacking and lacking in scriptural imagination, but I just, I can't do it backwards. I can't unknow and unsee the people who I knew and saw when I was mm. growing up. Yeah. I, it's still a quandary for me. And I guess to your point, uh, wrestle with it till we're blessed, you know? Um, one of my, I forgot the guy's name. One of the books I had read at that time that I was starting to realize that a bunch of my f- 
friends that I was going to church with weren't really Christians first so much as they were Republicans first or had a political persuasion first, that they had arrived at political and social positions and backed their scripture into it. Gosh, what is his name? Yeah, Jim Wallace, God's Politics. Oh, right, right, yes. Sojourners. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, one, mm-hmm. one of my critiques was that I, I, I felt that he started with his political positions on certain issues first and backed scripture into it. So I, you know, for me, I just start with scripture and then, and then arrive at, at conclusions, but it's a quandary. Um, And also Corey, it makes a difference. Remember that I, I grew up, I grew up, I grew up in mainline mainstream Protestantism in Texas. So we, we, we can't, your your commitments are going to be it's I, I don't want you to feel judged I don't want I'm not judging you for your commitments you you're you're trying to think through with integrity what you believe and that matters and I will tell you um I will tell you this in my field the people I cannot abide are the people who do this who who try to figure out which direction the wind is going yeah. And then that's where their conviction is, or they stay silent because they know it'll lose them some funding. So it's mm. the people who are afraid of offending the Templeton Foundation, the people who are afraid of offending the Koch brothers, yeah. the people who are afraid of offending Bill and Melinda Gates. Like it, that, I, not that Bill and Melinda Gates are in the same camp. Yeah, I, I understand. But, but uh, like it's the, so, so. Um, the colleagues in Christian ethics who I continue to have the best conversations with and the best friendships with are those who are, who are continuing to think through their convictions without attention to what's, what it's going to cost them in terms of books sold, bumper stickers sold, whatever because Jim Wallace like my I've my older daughter says you know she kept she asked me at one point she just was like every time she'd see that God is not a Republican or a Democrat she she would be like oh you know I'm so tired of seeing that bumper sticker because they were I don't know who which church in town was having them people put them on their cars but (laughs) I eventually told her a little bit about Sojourners and Jim Wallace and and she said well somebody needs to tell him God's an anarchist (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, that's that's <laughs> yeah this was before yeah anyway but yeah like <laughs> anarchic and that's a that's a term that actually rowan williams has in in one of his books he ca- talks about the anarchic mercy of god mm. and um yeah so yeah i did the whole god's not a republican or a democrat i'm like yada 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 yeah thanks that i, I learned a lot from that bumper sticker no <laughs> Yeah, I'm, you know, yeah, it's going to get me a lot of, gave me a lot of friends to hate on Jim Wallace. I'm not hating on him. No, I just no. I don't find him to be a particularly incisive uh, commentator on American politics. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I like nuance. So I, I like having voices with followings and authority that different voices um, that we, we can take their work and consider it. Um, it, it is a, I don't know if this is completely fair to say, but it's like a two-dimensional uh, picture that that we can look at and then have it as a basis of part of our conversation, kind of like what we're doing right now. Uh, but I 
prefer nuance. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, well, and it, because people are complicated, and 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 politics are complicated. I mean, you go and ask one person why they support Trump. It may be because we no longer can walk into Walmart and expect that we're going to be buying American-made products, which mm. was originally the idea. I can't. What is the name of the man who started Walmart? That was oh, Sam big- Sam Walton. Yeah, it was originally his idea was Walmart would be a place. It was one of his ideas was walk in and know that it was American made. Well, his son, I believe it was, who said, frack that we we're going to sell the cheapest stuff. So you you will have people who voted for Donald Trump. That's that is why. And then you'll have people who like his moxie or whatever they like. They like his they like his style, you know, which is confusing to me. But. Um, so people, people vote for, for very complicated reasons for different people. I'm sorry, that wasn't very incisive myself. <laughs> no. um, well, these are complicated issues. I, I, there's another, here's a tough one for you. Ha, have there been any positions that you've, on which you've evolved or even completely reversed course? Divorce. Mm. I mean, I... I, well, I wasn't against, gosh, before I went through divorce, I definitely had beloved friends who got divorced. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't in a principled sort of way against divorce, but in terms of my gut sense of things, I, I said, I mean, I said in class to people that I thought it was crucial in certain situations for couples to separate physically, even separate and be in different localities and go to counseling. So I, I pray that God will forgive me for the misteaching, the bad teaching that I may have given to people who really needed to get out of a bad situation. Um, Maybe one advantage of not being a terribly authoritative person in the classroom, not terribly intimidating is hopefully if somebody was in a really bad situation, they would have been able to tell themselves she doesn't really know what she's talking about because I, I was actively trying not to know what I was talking about. Mm. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I think back to early in our marriage and uh, when we first having kids, wow, there was a lot of stuff that I believed so firmly and I was so certain about that the older I get, the less certain I am about it, you know? And and, and it, we were in this uh, class, uh, young, young Marrieds, I think they called it. We should have, <laughs> sorry. My wife is just now, speaking of which, my Lisa's walking in and she's like tiptoeing so as not to make any noise. <laughs> Hi. I'll tell her to come in. Lee. Lee, come in. I want you to. I want. I want you to say hello to somebody. If if she's okay with that, 
Yeah, she's all right. On, on a couple other episodes, my mother walked in on my dad, you know, <laughs> Phyllis is, come on in, come on in. My, my mom told me to shush once when I was in Texas and I was trying to, to be involved in a teaching session. She came in and said, shh, right? <laughs> hello, I'm Here, Amy. Say hello, this is Amy Laura Hall. Oh, she can Amy hear. Laura. Ah. Hi. This, this is Miss Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Hello, it's this is Charlie. It's Charles <laughs> Mingus third. He's the one that makes so much noise. <laughs> I haven't heard a peep. I haven't yeah. heard a peep. I met Amy Laura through Tommy when Tommy was at Duke. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think you, you were, yeah, you were already a professor there when Tommy was doing his PhD. Mm -hmm. so yeah, he was in the very, I think he was in the first year. And stuff. So now we're doing the Michelle cool. talking politics and religion without killing each other. Oh, good luck with that. <laughs> very true. Very true. Yeah, anywhere I go. Yeah. I was at Walmart and there's a guy, recall Newsom. I'm like, I don't even know what this is about. <laughs> oh. Oh. Anyway, it's right. nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, Lisa. It's right. nice to meet you. Take care, stay healthy. <laughs> Thank you, I'll try, yeah. That's my lovely bride. I met her in Anniston, Alabama. Yeah. Picked her off the turnip truck. <laughs> so she's from Alabama and you're from New Jersey? Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, are you going to ask me how we met, what I was doing down in Alabama? <laughs> I was going to, but I don't mean to put you on the spot. That's all right. Um, I was down there. So I had just wrapped up a play in New York and um, I had a little bit of time. It was late October, early November. And a buddy of mine had, um, his dad had a business that was like a traveling glamour shots business for kids. And I just thought it was fascinating. I'd never been down South. So I just went down there literally just on a whim. He, he's, he was telling me about it. I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. We ran into his dad who was visiting up from the South. And my friend told him, hey, Corey's interested in maybe coming down South with us. And his name's Marvin. Marvin's like, what, you, you want to come down South? All right, here's what you do. You go back. You pack six pairs of pants, six pairs of shirts, and uh, meet me at six in the morning. We're leaving. <laughs> We're going. So literally, that was like 10 o'clock at night, literally six o'clock the next morning. I had my bags packed. We drove down with Marvin in the Dodge Dynasty, him smoking, chain smoking the whole way uh, from New Jersey to Atlanta. We finally get down there, and he puts me in the Dynasty, and he says, go, go on I-20 West for about an hour or two. And you'll see the lights. It's the only lights you're going to see for a while in uh, Anniston, Alabama. I need you to Quintod Mall. <laughs> so he was right. As soon as I left Atlanta, the first set of lights I saw was exit 185 off of I-20. And uh, the next morning I met Miss Lisa. Um, I, the reason I went down there was because I, my intent was to write a play, which I ended up doing. It was called 1-800-GLAMOUR um, about uh, a Southern salesman named, uh, he referred to himself as the great Candini. Um, anyway, this is turning into a longer story, but, um, the, the first mall where I met the great Candini who taught me all about the art of bartering. That's where I met Miss Lisa. She was doing display as they say down South, um, wow. in a store. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I hope that didn't bore you. We went way off track That's, there. But... No, can you see my face? Corey? <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, your listeners can't see my face. I'm just like transfixed. That yeah. is 
delightful. Yeah. So I, I begged her to go out with wow. me. Um, I'm glad she's not here because she, she would uh, be correcting me and saying this is my version, but it's it's the true version of the story. I had to ask her out like three different times before she finally, and when we went out to, uh, I took her to a fancy lunch. It we, I took her to the Red Lobster, it was a big deal. <laughs> yes, I know, I, I, I understand, I understand, yeah. So when I, I finally got her to go out to lunch with me. She agreed to go out to a, another lunch with me a couple days later, and we went to the Chinese food uh, restaurant in town. Um, and then, uh, that night we went out on our third date to dinner and Lisa says that she knew by the end of our third date that we were going to get married. And that was in 19, almost six. Oh, yesterday was, it was 27 years ago yesterday that, that, uh, yeah. (laughs) So November 17th. Um, and yeah, so we've been together ever since through ups and downs and you know, all that kind of, all that kind of jazz. Yes, yes, yes. And yes, and 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 I should say, I mean, that's it's I should say there in every marriage, in every good marriage, there are ups and downs. I mean, I I um yeah, I I still I I still I still um I still believe in the incredibly difficult and supposed to be also joyful covenant of marriage. It just, what I had to finally believe is that God wanted joy for me, not suffering that the, that the, the for better or worse should include some of the better and i'm i'm incredibly grateful for my daughters and i say this in the in the julian of norwich book that at one point um one of my daughters asked me if you had a time machine and you could go back and not marry her dad yeah do it and um it was when we were driving on the highway and I, I had to think for a bit, but I eventually said, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I knew the answer was not, yes, I would go back in time. I just, I told her that she and her sister are the best things, the best, they're, they're the miracles of my life. And I'm really glad that time doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, as someone who's become a really good friend of mine, um, she, I, I initially interviewed her on another uh, program that we do called Trailer Geeks and Teaser Gods. Uh, her name's Dawn Bailey. And I was asking this question in the interviews. It's about the history of the trailer, the coming attractions industry. And she's arguably one of the most brilliant key art designers, movie poster designers of all time. Um, she, uh, anyway, I, I was asking this question, something along the lines of if you could go back and do stuff differently, what would you do? And she, she sort of taught me that's kind of a backwards way of asking that question, you know, it, because it is, it just is, you know, it was, and now it is, Uh huh. you know, and, and uh-huh. so the question is maybe something more along the lines of what did you learn from that? And what are you going to do differently going forward? You know, uh-huh. like we, we did that thing and there it is, you know, and here, here's what, Here's what now is because of that thing. So, okay. Um, 
put more simply in poke, I'll put it in poker terms. If you make a bad play and you lose a lot of money, you tend to learn a lot from that hand, right? So it's not about, oh, I wish I could go back and do something differently or bet a different way or fold at a different time or something like that. It's about, okay, how's this going to make me a better poker player going forward? So again, I, I tend to go down these rabbit trails, so, which by the way, I, I am just, a, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, that didn't seem like a rabbit trail. No, it didn't seem like a rabbit trail. Yeah. Um, I'm not at the point yet where I can say that I learned a lesson that I would want anyone else to ever mm. have to learn. Um, so I'm, I'm still, you know what, Corey, you might appreciate this. I may be wrong, but okay. you might appreciate this. When I was in college, most of my, well, not all, but most of my really good friends, especially my first two years there um, are Jewish. And when I went back to my college reunion after my divorce, I prepared a very clear uh, sentence or two, I guess it was two, of what had happened because people were going to be, you know, how are you? What's up with you? And I was very blunt and I was very clear about what had happened to me. There were lots of other things to tell people and talk about, but I knew that that was something so I wasn't wearing a ring and I was engaged my senior year. Everybody, you know, all my friends knew. And not one single Jewish friend said to me anything like, well, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Or I bet you learned some lessons or God works for the good of, you know, all who suffer. Nothing like that. I mean, I, what I got from everybody, each person was that sucks. That sucks. Oh my God. The, the ministry of that sucks. Thank God for that sucks. The ministry of that sucks. Can we I just mean, sit? Can we a, just sit I here? I did get a, huh? Can, can, that, no, I'm, you're making your point better than I, I tried to, sorry. No, but the, yeah, the, the, I did get a few. How the hell did that happen to you? You were such a strong woman. And I'm like, good question. Like yeah. that is, thing I guess I've learned is that it does happen to very strong women what happened to me but um but yeah I didn't nobody gave me some sort of you know it's all at the Lord's God's, feet. God's plan is complicated providence is complicated I just didn't get any of that whereas I've had to endure that from <laughs> Christian friends. I yeah. wish you could see. I wish. I wish the audience could see your face now. Maybe we should <laughs> do this video. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. the patience. I, I. I really. I have. I have thought about carrying around the Book of Lamentations. Just copy. Just get a copy. <laughs> patience. Keep. Keep printing it off and carrying it around. Like this is in the Bible. Yep. In the yep. Bible. Like, don't tell me that that God doesn't want to ruin my pretty. I've had to hear God doesn't want to ruin your pretty face with that those tears. Like, don't you know God? God, like, let me pray over you so you are not ruining that beautiful face with those tears. I'm just like, I you know what I usually end up doing almost always is just standing there and let letting somebody pray over me and, really? and it's like, but wow, lamentations. It's in yeah. the Bible. <laughs> they had they I. I, it's another one I'm ambivalent about because I know their intentions are good, but I, yes. when we're going through shit, I don't want to hear, well, at least I just don't want to hear it. No, exactly. Exactly. And I'm like, don't be Job's friends. 
don't be Job's friends. Mm. Like it's people, I'm like, have you all not read the book of Job? Like it's in the Bible. You Bible person, read the book of Job. <laughs> right, right. Job, yeah, Bible no, I, we've, we've had those moments <laughs> and, and not so coincidentally when our, those moments when our marriage was most strange, like when our kid, our kid was on drugs, you know, like that doesn't happen to us when we lost our house. You know, I thought that, mm-hmm. you know, if you're honest and you do a certain thing and you pray the right way and you go to the right church and you're faithful to your wife, you don't lose your house, you know, but you, we lost our house. We, if, if you wear the right clothes and go, you know, do the right things and make enough money and send your kids to the right school, they don't get on drugs. My kid got on drugs and I don't want to hear well, at least I don't even want to hear that you're praying for it. Well, I do, but I, that, that's not I just want you to be with me. Can, can we just can we can we get together? Can we sit? Can we watch a ball game together? You know, can, can you just can you just put your arm, uh, your your hand on my shoulder while I cry? You know, mm-hmm. it was one of the times when me and my dad got that much closer. You know, our, mar- our our relationship was strained when I first became a Christian, to say the least. You know, and when Jackie Boy was going through that that mess, um, and still going through it in a lot of ways. You know, re- recovery is not a you know one time deal; it's a lifetime deal in a way. Um, you know, there were times when I just needed to tell somebody, I don't know how to do this, you know, mm-hmm. and my dad was wise enough just to let me cry, you know, so sorry, we again, another one of those rabbit trails. So. It's not a rabbit trail at all, Corey. It's, it's so important. It's so important. I, I have, uh, I have one, one more big question for you. In laughing at the devil. Uh, we, we've mentioned a couple of times your book on Julian of Norwich. You say, among many other things, um, this is a quote from, from the book. If my particular community or practice of Christianity is intertwined with untruth, I may find it unthinkable to think in any different way. Put simply, evil is particularly hard for some Christians to face if that evil is intertwined with a version of Christian language or Christian pra- practice that seems inextricably part of faith. Um, I read that the same day that I read a David French column uh, in the dispatch earlier this week. He asserts that many people who identify as Christians are actually Republicans. We talked a little bit about this already, actually Republicans first um, and in actuality, only Christians in a tertiary sense in a thou shalt have, thou shalt have no other parties before me kind of a way. Um, my question is what, what ways do you see Christianity intertwined with untruth in the current environment? Oh gosh. Uh, well, I, again, I'm sorry. I'm not good at, I'm not good at really macro. I mean, I can talk about geopolitics and you know something, you're right. I realize that from our from an earlier question that I'm asking you macro questions. I, lo- and I mean, most ma- of our answers are very micro. The right answers are usually should be very micro. I, I'm going to say this one other thing that some another former student said to me in relation to this particular story was: it is really important. It's really important for teachers to teach about the dangers of ambition. The, the, and the text that I assign repeatedly is actually C.S. Lewis's Inner Circle. If you've never read that, I really recommend it. 
Um, oh, I think I've read so much of his work. The inner after. ring. Okay. Is it called the inner ring or the inner circle? The inner ring um, that he gave, he gave as a talk to an all boys, all boys school about the desire to be in the in group and the, the dangers of, of that desire taking over. Yeah. Yeah. I just read a really long um, book on the inklings uh, that, that um, did a bunch of research on those conversations that Williams, Tolkien, oh gosh, who is the fourth um, C.S. Lewis and um, I forgot who the fourth was. And see, I don't, I don't, I, I only know a few essays. Oh, Barfield, Barfield. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dorothy Sayers should have been in that, in that group, but. Uh, have you seen me say that? Cause I have, I have, I've repeatedly said that. Is have Dorothy, you really? Oh, she. Yeah, I just, I think Dorothy Sayers, like people, if you want to, you want to think about ethics, read the Peter Whimsey mysteries, like read, read some, read some Dorothy Sayers mysteries. Yeah. And about them like that's that's a that's a great way into christian ethics yeah yeah i i love reading some of the the um that period that whole stretch uh you know and between oxford and cambridge you know gk chesterton's he had sort of this ongoing dialogue with uh what was his name he was f uh, a prominent scholar at the time an atheist and they had some back and forths uh, gk chesterton and I, I can't believe I forgot his name. Um, he has it's okay. You're not going to offend me. You're not going to offend me. Very persuasive essays too. Anyway, well, I could uh, do this for another couple hours, but <laughs> I've taken the up English, so much of your day already. The English churchman, the English churchman who starts my man book. So we can go like, I can circle back the, the book, the man, I call it the man book. And then <laughs> I think it is. William Bennett actually has a book called The Man Book. Uh, he came out with a book called The Man Book. And I was like, oh, I can't call it The Man Book anymore. But um, the, the first chapter of The Man Book is about Charles Kingsley, for whom the term muscular Christianity was coined. Oh, OK. He was he was the official advisor to Queen Victoria, and he wrote a form of natural theology to christen Darwinism in such a way that that really it bat, he he helped baptize social darwinism so oh. he wrote he wrote a theology he some of his some of his treatises uh give a a darwinian providential read of empire that was very serviceable mm. Okay. And he wasn't he wasn't calculatedly doing that. It was I think he really, really believed it. He's in as much as the inklings go against Kingsley, I'm curious about what they wrote. Um, but I, I think Kingsley continues to be a default way of thinking for for too many uh, Christians who think of themselves as progressive. Yeah. Um, Bertrand Russell, that was the scholar I was thinking oh, of. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he makes much more persuasive arguments than uh, somebody like Richard Dawkins. I, I, it's like. Yeah. If you want to see, if you want to see my answer to the bright, what they call themselves the bright ones. or the Yeah, bright, the, yeah. the brights or something like that. Brights. Yeah. 
yeah, he one of those guys, and I can't remember which one, was coming to Duke to do a whole thing. And we got an email. There was a faculty email, like, should we do something? And if you look up my my um, Toasts for Billionaires street theater that we did, <laughs> it was, I mean, we were already working on a street theater to draw attention to what was happening with, 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 um, the, yeah, the giant bonuses that people were giving themselves at Duke during. Oh, if y'all, if y'all want a treat, look up Amy Laura Hall on YouTube and, and there's, um, isn't there one of you dressed up at what, uh, like as a, not a pixie. What, what? <laughs> it was about this thing and you jar. delivered a big check or something like that. Well, delivered a giant gold check to the, to the chancellor of the medical center um, Victor Zhao. And I don't know if he, I don't know how to find that because it's not on my actual, my own YouTube channel. I think that the man who, the man who took the video and edited it, I think it's under M as in Matt Gates. And then there's a number, maybe M Gates 17 or something like that. Okay. But, but yeah, that was, so we were, you know, do we debate this bright person, whatever? I can't remember which bright person was coming to do to, to, you know, talk about the importance of atheism. Do we debate him? I was like, no, I'm not even going to bother debating him, but we have this thing going on right now at Duke that has to do with people being treated like crap and other people like stepping on them and making giant checks so let's do that. But the language, of the, toast, the language of the toast is very much about a form of Darwinism that justifies those kinds of drastic inequalities. So that was my answer to the brights was yeah. to wear a tiara and toast the best and the brightest. <laughs> so it's, I don't I don't I don't name that. But that was what was going on in the backdrop because he was there that week. Well, if my grandfather was alive he would give you, he, he would call you, a, he, it was a mistranslation and he must've misheard somebody once, but it was his thing. He's, if he called you a titzkamacha, that was a good thing. So <laughs> the literal translation is someone who makes tzitzis, like the, the strings on the side of a talus. Uh, um, but I, so I think the real word for it is something like turismacha, troublemaker. Uh, but if he called you a titzkamacha, you really earned a place at the table. You know, I asked him one time, I asked him what one time, come on, Zay, to tell me, you know, and Baba, my grandmother was, oh, Sal, you, you know, you, it's the wrong word because she really spoke Yiddish. And so he said, here's what it means. If horseshit was electricity, you'd be a powerhouse. But what <laughs> so what he what he meant was I'm, I was a pain in the ass in all the best ways. So <laughs> so if you <laughs> so if you've earned the title Titzkamacha from Sal Nathan from Isaida. That's a good thing. You're a pain in the ass in all the right ways. <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled. I am thrilled. Welcome That's... to the Tzitzkamacha Club. <laughs> Thank you, Corey. Thank well, this you. has been a real joy. This has been a real treat. I knew I knew it would be. So we'll have Thank to do it again. Thank you for asking. Thank yeah, you. we'll have to do it again I, I, yes. soon. Yes, yes. With, with Ronnie. Huh? With Ronnie, with my dad. <laughs> yes. Yes. I would love that. I would love that. And eventually we'll be able to travel again. Like, oh man. Wouldn't that be great? We'll be, you know, like the first place I'm going is to Texas to be with my parents again. Mm. But, but I was just there two weeks ago. I was in Austin and drove up through uh, Dallas and I, that was quite a trip. I, I did a uh, Austin to Tulsa 
to Nashville, down to New Orleans, and then from New Orleans across Texas over back to Austin. That was an interesting drive. It was pretty, I was thoroughly convinced once I did that drive, um, because, you know, between Houston and Austin, there's not really a big highway that goes. So you're kind of, it's not West Texas, but you get a sense of what, what direction the wind's blowing, <laughs> you know? Yes. Yes. I, I, I had a feeling that Texas was not going to go blue uh, once I did that drive. So. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, it was close. It's con- Texas is comp. Texas is getting more and more complicated, too. It is. And ain't it great? Ain't it great? Yeah. Austin. <laughs> Austin is a great sort of um, little center uh, for a lot of the same reasons. I like the quarter in New Orleans, 6th Street. I could spend a year there one night on 6th Street. Yes. Um, that was, yes. That was, that's cool. But uh, anyway, someday, someday you need to get to the hill country and then and then someday get yourself out to where like the, that Mormon, that Mormon sect, that group of people. I'm sorry, they Mormons do not consider that group of people who were in um, who were in West Texas to be Mormon. But El Dorado, okay. I think in El Dorado County, what county is that? So there was, a, I don't know if you remember this, it's from a long time ago, like a couple of maybe 15, 20 years ago, maybe even longer than that, where there was, it was discovered that there was a group of people and and they were um, living polygamy in a way that really wasn't healthy for oh. the children and for the women. Um, and it was, it was, people laughed if people from that part of Texas were like, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff that can go on in this part of the world because it's the middle of nowhere. Like they're yeah. totally like, yep, you want to hide, you can go out that direction and hide. But yeah, I it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And it's different than anything else I've ever encountered is that that part of Texas. So I hope you have a chance someday to go out that direction. Yeah. We drove through it once. Uh, you know, it was the longest part of our trip driving from Alabama to LA when we moved here. Um, it was the first time I encountered tumbleweed yes. as big as my car. <laughs> yes. Yes. And roadrunners. So they're actual roadrunners. Actual roadrunners. Yeah. Jackrabbits as big as like a little deer. I mean, you can think it's, a, you'd be like, what's that? Oh, it's, it's jackrabbit. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. It um, is. Well, I really yeah. enjoyed doing this and I can't wait to, to do it again and to see it in person. We'll have to figure it, figure it out when the, world gets a little bit of sanity back so well thank you thank you for your patience Corey, in arranging this with all the other stuff going on you were really patient and um i'm i'm honored that you that you wanted to spend time hearing my answers to such incredibly important difficult questions so thank you well worth the wait thank you absolutely okay Bye. Bye, bye, bye to Lisa too. Definitely. Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. You're home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. 